0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of Jude. It's actually a letter. It's not really a book, but it's one of the books of the Bible, but it's a letter. An epistle. I like that. The last couple of weeks, we really kind of spent a lot of time in the first four verses. And we we talked about, you know, just establishing the author of this because uh, it is significant that it was Jesus' half-brother that wrote this letter. In the last couple of weeks, we talked about contending for the faith and how necessary that is. It was necessary for them at the time that this letter was written to the church in general. But even for us today, this is very applicable because we need to, more than ever, to contend for the faith. We need to strive. We need to struggle. Uh, we, need to, we need to get Our feet firmly planted and and dig in our heels, because there's a lot of things trying to sway us, a lot of cultural things that are trying to sway us and get us off the mark, and we need to be straight as an arrow, we need to be following Jesus, we don't follow a man, we don't follow a movement, we don't follow anything, we follow Jesus, right, that's what, that's who we follow, we don't follow Calvary Chapel even, we follow Jesus Christ, and we love his word, amen? And so that's why we are here. And so we looked at contending for the faith. And, um, and also the, uh, the exhortation or the warning, actually, that certain men have crept in unnoticed and are delivering doctrines um, and, and, and lewdness. And these are men that don't even know the Lord at all. These aren't just wayward believers or uh, backslidden believers. These are men whose intention is to destroy the faith of some and to deny Jesus Christ, and to deny his word. That was their intention, and they are all around us today. And many of them are on television. Charlatans. And this is never easy to say, because I hope I'm never one of them. I hope I'm never one of them. My desire is to stay true to the word of God, and to love Jesus Christ, and to worship him alone. And I know that's your desire. So we looked at verses 1 through 4, but I would like to... Uh, get into uh, 5, and and if the Lord allows us to to finish this chapter today, I don't know if it's going to be possible, but we'll give it a shot, but we'll certainly get through a good chunk of it. So let's look at, um, let's pick up in verse 3, but we're really going to start in verse 5. So in verse 3 of this, uh, Jude says, Beloved, and again, when he says beloved, he's saying dear friends. That's kind of the... The the salutation. He he's talking to people that he knows. And so he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting to contend earnestly for the faith, which was notice once for all delivered to the saints. You might want to underline that if you haven't already. And why? Why is it necessary for us to contend earnestly for the faith? The answer is verse 4, because certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we go on. But I want to remind you, though, you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice he's drawing a comparison here. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these having given themselves over giving themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh boy that's an interesting phrase kind of sounds kind of spooky something you want to stay away from is strange flesh amen <laughs> so and they're set forth as an example he tells us suffering the vengeance of eternal Fire. And likewise, also these dreamers, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, they speak evil of dignitaries. And yet, Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but rather said, The Lord rebuke you. But these, they speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And that's that may be all we get today, we'll see. But uh, let's look at this, let's go back in verse 5 here. This is an interesting thing. Now, there's some interesting things that we're going to be talking about today, and you may not agree with them, and that's okay. And they're a little bit dark, I'll be honest with you, because these are kind of some, some dark things. And in fact, this whole letter is full of warning, and it's full of exhortation, but warning about what's coming and um, the, the eternal consequences of people like this. And he gives us examples in the Old Testament, and even things yet future, of their doom And so this is not one of those necessarily feel-good messages. I can't wait to get to the Gospels. um, Because after we get through this, we're going to get right into Revelation. That's going to get interesting too. But um, So if we look at verses 5 through 16... The Lord is saying that just as the old apostates receive judgment, so will the new ones. And anyone that comes after them will be judged in like manner. And the thing we have to remember is that God does not show partiality. He's not, he doesn't treat one group one way and another group the one another way. God is consistent. He judges sin. And even as a believer, when we sin, he chastens us. To, to instruct us. That's the difference between being in Christ and outside of Christ. When you're in Christ, God chastens you with the intention of giving you instruction to get you back on the path again. If you're an unbeliever and you continue in your unbelief until you take your last breath and you are judged, you are judged for that sin or those sins that you've committed. And even during your life, the consequences of the sins that you've made, there are always consequences. That's why we look around us and we see so many people's lives such a wreck because they've never bowed their knee to Christ. They've never submitted themselves to the Word of God. They have no authority. In fact, they despise authority. And as a result, their lives are a complete train wreck. And it's just one train wreck after another. Have you known people like that outside of Christ? Even sometimes in Christ you find people like that, but especially outside of Christ, it's just one calamity after another, and a lot of it they brought on themselves because of the choices that they've made. And see, God is no partial; He's not partial. He he, He's hard on all of us because He knows what's best for us. I don't know what's best for me. Certainly, before I came to Christ, I didn't know what was good for me. I thought I knew best, but now I know Him. And I know that he is the example. He is the standard. In fact, in Hebrews, uh, speaking of believers, um, the author says this, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And he does that because he loves us. A father may uh, discipline us for a season, but God does it for our good, And he knows what to do, and he knows the length, and he knows how severe it needs to be. And every one of us is individual. It's not the same for you, and it's not the same for you. It's just God's custom-made sort of thing that he does. And he knows you may be able to get away with that much of that particular sin, and another person only gets away with that much much of it before um, before the Lord really starts bringing uh, chastening upon them. We don't always understand that. We don't think it's fair, and it really isn't. But God is just. He's not always fair in the, in the sight of the world. But in Romans, it says that, um, that God will render each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good see, seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, this is what they get. They get indignation and they get wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But, glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? Verse 11, it says in Romans 2, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. He's not partial. So we get into verse 5, and he says, But I want to remind you, though, once you knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Notice that of all the people... Um, All the children of Israel who fled Egypt, only Joshua and Caleb and the younger generation were the ones who made it into the promised land. The rest of them died. Aaron and, and Moses himself and that older generation, they all died in the wilderness. And why was it? Hebrews tells us. It says because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. And that's really what Jude is saying here. He's saying these apostates, these men or women who are um, giving themselves over to lewdness and denying the only Lord God and Jesus Christ, he says, I want you to remind you of something, that God is not partial. And just as he judged those who did not believe in, in, in God's own people, he judged them in the wilderness. Thousands of them had died in the wilderness, he says, so too for these. God is the same. And he goes on and he says, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now this is a really interesting can of worms, isn't it? It's funny to me, it's, it's not funny, it's just interesting how Jude just nonchalantly just pulls this verse out, sticks it in there and just keeps going and you're like, oh, wait a minute. What is this all about? And you've got to understand something that this idea that I'm going to share with you today, I believe, was very common to them. And it's uh, common because he didn't really see the need to elaborate on it, which means that his audience probably understood what he was talking about. He probably, they probably understood what he was talking about. So let's just get into this a little bit, okay? Because this is one of those crazy uh, verses of Scripture, and uh, we need to take a look at it. If you would turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 4 through 6 here. But notice what I just read. Now, Jude is saying, just like, these, just like these Old Testament, and even these angels, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, they didn't keep their estate, they didn't keep their abode, the place where they were dwelling, they, did, they were supposed to remain in heaven, they were supposed to remain there. And, and stay in that form. But notice, but they left their own abode. And notice it says that God has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The great day is still in front of us, isn't it, in time? Actually, from your perspective, I'm pointing backwards. But the, on the timeline here, it's still yet in the future for even us. But notice what it says in Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. He says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell... And delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Notice that this unlawful, there's something really interesting about this. There was an unlawful and wicked crossing of the boundaries. This is a real spooky verse, but we're going to get into it. Because they left their first abode. It may have, Them doing this may have been what produced the giants in the time before and after the flood. The Nephilim I'm referring to specifically. These fallen ones. This may have been... What happened? A race of people that God had pronounced judgment upon. And we know them as the Nephilim, the Rephaim, we know them as the Anakim, the Emim, the Zamzumim. We see them before the flood. In fact, they are one of the reasons why God brought the flood Because of the wickedness of man and because of this race of people, God saw that it was wicked. It was really, really wicked. And there's something really interesting about this because we're going to go to Genesis. You might as well turn there because something happened before the flood and it also occurred again after the flood. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, it says, Now it came to pass, now what, what chapter is after Genesis 6? What chapter? Chapter 7. What happens in Genesis chapter 7? The flood. Okay, so now Moses is telling us, God is telling us, it says, It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, I want you to underline that, Sons of God, you're going to see it. It only happens four times. This phrase only happens actually uh, five times in the Old Testament. Five times, and we're going to look at at least four of those today. Notice that the sons of God, they saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took them wives for themselves, all whom they chose. And notice, now let me ask you a question. This is just logic. God placed man and woman on the earth to procreate. That's a very common thing. He said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And it would appear that something is amiss here because of God pronouncing judgment upon this certain arrangement. Look at it. It's very clear. And the Lord said, as a result of this, the sons of God with the daughters of men... He says, "My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he indeed is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And it says there were giants that were giants as Nephilim in the Hebrew. They were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, after what, after the flood." And he's going to share that with us in the very next chapter. But even after that, when the sons of God, underline that again, the sons of God, even after the flood, they came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. And these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So this wicked activity had to be more than just a normal physical relationship between a woman and a man. Otherwise, God wouldn't have pronounced such warning and and a, and a decisive blow to it. Does that make sense? I don't know, does it? It's okay if it doesn't, but to me it does. Because he he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. But there's something about these sons of God. Sons of God and the daughters of men. There's some unholy union happening here. In fact, turn with me now to Job chapter 1. So now we've seen two of the instances in the Old Testament where the sons of God comes about and my point in doing this is to prove something to you because it's good for us to read the Bible and read it with your mind you don't have to check out your brain when you read the Bible read it and think about it and I think you'll agree with me what I'm going to share with you today makes sense and by the way I'm not the only one who feels this way so it's, I'm, not, I'm not trying to teach you something that's weird and aberrant Okay. But notice what it says in Job chapter 1, and verse 6. Now, every time we hear the, see the word sons of God, that phrase, I want you to underline it. So here it is. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro throughout the earth and walking back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in all the earth, a, a, a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. But notice that phrase, sons of, or sons of God. Let me ask you a question. Just based on what we've read so far, does the, word, the phrase sons of God, does that sound like a, a, a people like you and I? I don't stand in the presence of God. I mean, right now, I mean, not in the flesh, right? In order to stand in the presence of God, as this is describing to me, and to have Satan present, is God a spirit? He is. The Bible says so. God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Is the devil, is he a spirit? He is. So these sons of God are in the company of God and Satan. Now turn with me to Job chapter 2. Just go over one chapter and look in verse 1. And it says, Again, Again, (laughs) there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And he says the exact same thing, a little bit variant. But the idea is, these are angels. These sons of God, ben Elohim, which means sons of God, these are angels, and specifically fallen angels. These are demons. These aren't men like you and I would think of them. Because in order to be in the presence of god you 've got to be in the same dimension you 've got to be in the same physical thing I mean as anybody nobody the Bible says that no one has seen God and lived in, his, in in spirit, right for us to stand before God as spirit, we would vanish <laughs> in His glory and then finally, in job thirty eight you don 't have to go there. let me just read this to you, but it 's in verse seven, but i 'm going to read verse four it says. Finally, God is opening up to Job. and He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And to what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? And here's the verse. Then the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. These are angels. These are not men. Does that make sense? Is my my brain soft? Or does that make sense? These are angels. All five references in the Old Testament speak of angelic beings, not men's souls. In the New Testament, the phrase sons of God appears, but it's only speaking of believers. But in the Old Testament, there's only five of them. And for the ones that we read just now, would you agree with me that the connotation of those four don't sound very good? The Genesis, the sons of God going in and and having relationships with with women and developing this race of giants that were wicked. And then Job, you know, these sons of God standing before God and the devil presenting themselves before the Lord in spirit, their spirits, their, their demonic spirits. And these sons of God are demonic spirits that Jesus spoke of. You remember when we are in 1 Peter chapter 3, we looked at this, and we'll get into that briefly. But what was the purpose of the demons or the Nephilim or the fallen ones to do this? Why did they leave their first estate, as Jude is telling us? What was the point, really, for them to come down and to physically uh, make themselves uh, physical and visible and to have relations with women, and then those offspring become... Uh, something genetically different than a normal union between a husband and wife. Wouldn't you agree that there's something kind of weird about this? These race of giants. The, the Bible is filled with this kind of stuff. We don't have time to go there. But these men of great stature, and they were all bent on evil. And it all goes back to the sin of these fallen angels leaving their first estate and God allowing it for some reason. And it happened before the flood, and God brought the flood and wiped everybody out. And guess who only inherited the earth after the flood? Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three his, their three wives. Eight people. But yet the Bible says later on in Deuteronomy 13, verse 31, it says that, The same problem started happening again. After God had judged the earth and they started to replenish the earth from Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all of a sudden we have the same problem where these fallen angels are coming down and they're having intimacy, intercourse with women, giving birth to again the Nephilim. I believe that's what happened. And it makes sense to me. And another reason they did this is to pollute the bloodline. All the scriptures, going back even to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, talks about the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. Who is the serpent? Satan. And not only that, but you get into the book of Genesis, and it ultimately goes through the lineage that the Messiah it was no mistake, the seed of the woman, this king, this Messiah would come through not only Adam, but he would come through Noah. And specifically, he would come through Shem. He would come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, down through Judah, down through King David, and finally to Mary, whom ultimately would give birth to Jesus. So the devil's polluting the bloodline trying to keep that prophecy from happening because he knows his days are short that's why he's so angry that's why he's trying to destroy he doesn't care how he does it he just wants to get a hold of your life he wants to get a foothold in your life whatever it may be it could be it could be a bitter attitude it could be anger it could be frustration it could be stealing it could be pornography it could be any any number of sexual sins or abuses of drugs he wants to get a foothold in cuz he all he cares about is to take you away, to take you out, to snuff out. He can't take away your salvation if you're a child of God, but at least he can get you off the planet. One less believer to get in the way. That's the way he thinks. He can destroy somebody who doesn't know Christ. That's his desire. Because they are the object of God's love. They are the object of why Jesus died for them on the cross. Satan wants to destroy them, but even you as a believer. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your witness. He wants to destroy you ultimately. And guess what? God has got his hand on you. He's got his hand on you. He's never going to let you go. So, this was a problem before and after the flood. And besides this, we know that angels, they're spiritual beings, they seem to have the ability to transform themselves from non physical beings into physical beings and vice versa. I believe that they materialize or transformed themselves into human form, and this they had demon seed capable of altering the DNA to produce these races of, 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 of men that were these mutant giants. And again, the Nephilim, the Rephaim, the Emims, the Zamzumims, Anak, Goliath, etc. These demonic beings also seem to have the ability to change form, like the locusts in Revelation 19. We're going to look at that briefly. And what about Genesis 19? Is it such a far-fetched idea? Who were the three men that came to Abraham before he, they judged and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? There were three angels that appeared. Three angels, they appeared physically before Abraham. And one of them was a theophany. One of them was Jesus Christ himself. The angel of the Lord and Abraham treated him as God. So is it really a far-fetched idea for a, an angelic being to take shape into something different? I don't think biblically, I don't think that's a far-fetched idea. What happened in Judges 13? Do you remember when the, Lord, uh, the angel of the Lord uh, came to Manoah and his wife for, uh, and prophesied of the birth of Samson? Do you remember what happened there? The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and they were so excited about this news about having a son... And then the angel of the Lord says, you're going to give birth to Samson. And this is what he's going to do. And he's going to take the Nazarite vow. No razor's going to touch his head, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he's going to deliver my people from the Philistines. And they were just, their eyes are dropping. And, 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 and they're like, they know something's going on here that's supernatural. They go to make an offering to him on the fire on the altar. And he ascends in the flame. He was physical just a few moments ago, speaking with them. They could touch him and all of a sudden he just... Goes up in the flame. That's what the Bible says. So these are spirits. Angelic beings. It's spooky, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think, if, if you, you know, uh, I believe that there are people who can be possessed by demons, not, not believers. But non-believers can be possessed by spirits. And I also believe that at times, as we've seen in history, that they can actually materialize into human form. And I think the Bible supports that. Notice what it says. Um, Let me see. Um, In Revelation, remember what we just read, how it says the angels who did not keep their proper domain, they were supposed to remain in heaven, they left their own abode. God has reserved an everlasting chains, notice, under darkness for the purpose of the judgment of the great day. We know that the judgment of the great day is still yet future to us, right? Look with me at Revelation 19. Let me read something to you. This is kind of weird, isn't it? This is really fascinating stuff, and there's not a great deal of application other than don't be one of these people. <laughs> don't be like this. In fact, you know, study your Bible and understand just the the how, how serious God is. He hates these things. Anything pertaining to it. But notice these angels are in everlasting change right now, reserved for judgment of the great day. Look with me. I'm going to give you two different scenarios because I believe that, number one, God is going to use them perhaps in the very last day, in the great tribulation period. Remember, after the church is raptured, after the church is removed from the earth, there is going to be a period of time that the Bible says is is called the Jacob's Trouble or the, the great tribulation period where God's wrath is going to be poured out upon a world that has rejected him. You and I, if you're a believer in Christ, you're not going to see that. You're going to be with him But there are people on the earth that are going to be here. And at some point during the the second half, we believe, of that great tribulation period, God is going to use these angels that we looked at in Genesis 6 that that have left their first abode, did this wickedness. God destroyed them and sent them into Hades. Maybe the lowest part of that could be Tartarus. It could be the abyss. Whatever they want to call it, it's the lowest part of that container, whatever that is. God places them in there, and even after the flood, this thing happened again, and they were destroyed, and they went right down to this place. And they're in chains in darkness, ready for the great judgment. And there's two different ways that I can see this happening. Let's look at the first one in Revelation chapter 9. This is kind of an interesting thing, though. God is, again... At this time is pouring out his wrath upon the earth. And it says the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. This is not a demonic being. This is a a good angel. And to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. That's where we get the word abuso or the abyss. That's exactly what it means. And he opened the bottomless pit. He opened the abyss, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, so the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke locusts came out of the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth had power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men... Who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, and they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man, in those de- days men will seek death and will not find it. they will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locust he describes him here was like horses notice there 's a lot of uh, words like "as and like meaning that he he 's trying to describe something that he he 's never seen before, so he 's doing his best to put words on this for us, so he says. On their heads were crowns of something like gold and their faces were like the faces of men and they had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth and they had our breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions and they were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And here's the funny thing. Actually, it's not funny at all. And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. But in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. Now, I don't believe this is Satan himself. I believe it's probably a pretty important angel of the dark realm. And we know this because later on, Satan is not in the abyss at this time. But these angels are these fallen ones, these ones that God has reserved in chains, and now they come out for what? The judgment of the great day. I believe that God could be using them as a means of judgment to judge those on the earth who have rejected Christ. But notice also in Revelation chapter 20, God ultimately will judge them for eternity because the Bible says at the great white throne judgment in verse 13 of Revelation 20, it says the sea, you can read uh, verses 11 through 15, but I'm just going to start at verse 13 for the sake of time. It says the sea gave up the dead who were in it and notice and death and Hades. So anyone who has died and, and were wicked, they go to Hades. It's a physical, it's a real place and death is Thanatos. I don't really understand what that is. I'll be honest with you. I don't understand what death and Hades. I understand what Hades is, and I understand the people who are contained in Hades. Notice that God is going to deliver that all up, and they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades, this, this container, if you will, of people, were cast into the lake of fire, which we know as Gehenna. This is the eternal judgment place that will never end. The lake of fire. And anyone found not written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so ultimately they will be judged. God is, appears to be going to be using them during the great tribulation period for his own purposes. Because you've got to understand, they're in chains under darkness, and they want revenge. They want to go out and destroy. That's what they're bent on doing. And they've been there for a long, long time. And when that angel finally comes and opens up that, whatever that is, that abuso, they're going to come out, and they're not going to be happy. And God's going to allow it. He's going to allow him. He's prepared them for a time, and I believe that is the time that He is preparing for them. And that brings into uh, relief, really, the verse that we looked at in First Peter. Let me just read it to you. In First Peter chapter three, this is kind of related, but somewhat different. It says, for Christ also suffered for sins. This is 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Notice verse 19, this is the one, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. And he goes on here. And my point in this whole thing is, is Jesus, when he died on the cross, he went to Hades. Did he go there because he was a bad person? No. Because, look, I want you to underline a couple words. The word preached in verse 19 is a word that means, it's a Greek word, it means "cariso" and it means to herald a victory. Does that make sense? Jesus didn't go to Hades because he was bad. No, he already took the sin of himself, of the world upon himself, but after his death, Somewhere between his his death and maybe even his ascension, I don't know exactly when that happened, but at some point he went down and he preached to those in everlasting chains because they were all about to stop him from even coming to coming forth to the earth. Remember in Genesis six, again it's a, um, uh, what's the word I want? Uh, it's a conjecture maybe. But he went there to, to tell them of the victory over death and hell. Oh, hey, oh, oh death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Remember the psalm? I believe that Jesus, when he spoke to those spirits, he, he was preaching to them, but the word is very different than preaching like you and I know it. You and I, when we preach, we share the gospel. It's a whole different word. In fact, the Bible calls it evangelizo. It's a whole different um, Greek verb. But this one, Cariso literally means to herald a victory. And why did he do that? Why did he go down there to tell them, huh, your goose is cooked. Everything you tried to do has been foiled. Behold, I am here, risen from the grave, the seed of David, the great king, conquering death and hell, and your day's coming. You know, and again, i said this before, so forgive me because I am a boy. I just I, I I think of Clint Eastwood when I when I see this, I can't help it. I just I see the the look on a, you know, the leather look on his face and the hat and the and the forty four magnums on each side. Your goose is cooked. <laughs> and I don't mean to make light of this. Please don't. You know, I'm not trying to be uh, irreverent here. But it's it's a moment. It's 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 a victory. It's it's God basically sticking the finger in the eye of the enemy, saying you've lost. It's done. I like that. Don't you? Saying everything you did, tried to do, it's foiled, it's done. And you guys got some more time here. And ultimately you're going to be destroyed. You can look at. Um, we kind of went into more detail on this on a teaching that was done on First Peter chapter three verses eighteen through twenty. It was given actually on uh, April seventh of last year of two thousand nineteen. You can see that on the online or on podcast. You can go back and you can listen to it. We go into a little more detail about that specific event. But let's go on now. But I wanted to establish this idea that these angels that were kept and, and for judgment for the last day. It goes all the way back to Genesis. And it goes through Job. These sons of God are angels. They're fallen angels. And God is going to hold them in this place for everlasting torment. And they're going to be in chains until he wants to release them in the tribulation period. And ultimately, at after they're done doing their business, they're ultimately going to be sent to the lake of fire, as it says in Revelation 20. Does that make sense? So now we go on. And let's see. Let's just get down through... Um, verse uh, 7 maybe 11 so notice uh, in verse 6 says, and the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness under the judgment of the great day and he goes on notice circle the word as as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner underline that phrase in similar manner and circle the word as because he's drawing a comparison um Judas' comparing these fallen angels, or these sons of God, and their unholy sexual union with human women. He's comparing them with Sodom and Gomorrah and their lust for strange flesh. Because what does it say in verse seven? It says, "In a like manner to these, Sodom and Gomorrah having given them over, giving themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh." are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so this is interesting because this word strange literally means heteros. It's, it's a Greek word which means other or another form of, of, of not the same kind, a different class. It's different. Does that make sense? Wouldn't you agree that an angelic being who is standing physically before you is made of something different than you and I? There's something different. Wouldn't you agree? different DNA, something. I don't know what it is with them, but it's it's quite a bit different. So the strange flesh, and so the attention goes back to now the unbelieving apostates in verse 8. He says, likewise, also these dreamers, these apostates, who are going to suffer vengeance just like these fallen angels, just like these men and women going from the Exodus who died in their unbelief in the wilderness. Likewise, these dreamers... These apostates, they defile the flesh, and they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries. In Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, Paul says this, he says, "...for this reason," and he's speaking to, again, false teachers and apostates, he says, "...for this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature." Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, they burned in their lust to one another, men and men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them up. And here's the sad thing about a heart that is bent on going against the Lord Jesus Christ is there's coming a point where God will give you up to those passions. And this is the scary part. This is where we never want to go. And if you know people that are like this, say, you know, uh, tell them the truth. Love on them. Bring them to church. I would encourage everyone here today, there's somebody who lives next door to you. There's somebody in your community that you've talked to recently. Invite them to church. Invite them here. Bring them Take them to lunch next door if they're not comfortable hanging out with all of us smiling. I get that. Not everybody's comfortable with a bunch of Christians at first. Take them next door. Bless our tenants. You know, Take them to the restaurant next door. But bring someone. Next week, if not next week, the next week, always think about who you can bring. We got to do it, folks. We gotta get the message out there. And who better than the people who are surrounding us right where we live? Just invite them. Say, come, come and come to church with me. I'll buy you breakfast. You can leave afterwards, immediately afterwards, if you don't want to. You can run out screaming if you'd like. But come. You gotta hear. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's how I got saved. I heard the word of God, I responded. They're no different. Invite somebody and always be thinking about inviting someone, a family member, a friend, a coworker, whoever it is. Don't just go through the status quo of life. Be active. Be purposeful. Invite, invite, invite them. And talk to them personally one on one. We have to invite them. But notice, you know, these dreamers, they defile the flesh. And I think I just read in Romans of of different ways they can defile the flesh. And in our culture today, there's, there's no holds barred on anything. Everything is out in the open. It's really ridiculous. Horrible, filthy things happening in our culture. Horrible, filthy things happening in the church. We have to wake up. We have to take stock in what's going on in our hearts and our minds. And we have to get serious. Because God will chasten those whom he loves. He's going to chasten me. He's going to chasten you. And why? Because he loves us. But take it seriously, brothers and sisters. The Lord Jesus Christ loves you. He paid the price for you. And he wants the best for you. And you're dying in your sin. You're holding on to things that you should have let go a long time ago. There's unforgiveness still in your heart that you're you're still not willing to give up. There's people that you need to talk to that you've refrained from because you're so angry with them. You hate them. There's family members like that. You don't talk to them anymore. You've had it. But these... Not believers, but these apostates, these dreamers who defile the flesh. They also, they reject authority. Isn't that one of the things that Paul said to Timothy that would happen in the last days? In 2 Timothy verse 3, or chapter 3, he says, But know this, that in the last times, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of who? God? No, they're going to be lovers of themselves. And they're going to be lovers of money. They're going to love money. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of it. It's the desiring of it. I got to do anything to attain it because I find security in having more money. I can do what I want with it. I can buy and make myself happy temporarily until I realize they got a bigger boat than I do. And then all of a sudden I got buyer's remorse. Has that ever happened to you? So is money really the, the thing that's going to make you happy? Is it going to fulfill you? But they're going to be lovers of money. They're going to be boasters. They're going to be proud. Boy, the world is so proud. There's so much pride in my heart. And I know that there's pride in your heart too. And boy, the Lord has a, an interesting way of somehow bringing that out. And unfortunately, sometimes it's right in front of an unbeliever. And boy, is that humbling. You ever had an unbeliever tell you something that you know is true? <laughs> they're acting more holy than you are. But yet they don't know Christ. And therefore, they are, there's no admittance to heaven for them, but for you and I, yes. Kind of an interesting paradox, isn't it? But notice, there'll be blasphemers, and here it is, they'll be disobedient to parents. They will reject authority, and it, and it starts in the home. It starts with a, a young person rejecting their parents, rejecting the authority, and then it happens on the workplace. And then if, and, and because the, the, things are so messed up, so many uh, So many uh, employers are having such a hard time getting good workers, they put up with all this nonsense because there's so few good people out there that they can trust, that submits to their authority, that will do what they want them to do. Instead, they hire somebody who wants to take over the business. Well, you're not doing it right. You should do it this way. And they're frustrated. But there's people, they reject authority. We've learned in the last couple of decades that crime does pay and that there are no real bad consequences for most of the evil things that we might do. There's no deterrent today in our justice system, very little deterrent. I saw this in the news recently uh, in January, in the beginning of January, and I'm looking at the screen snap of of the headline, and it says, California expands law against school suspension. Why am I bringing this up? Because of the rejecting of authority. That's why I'm bringing this up, is because that's the place we live in. And that's who these apostates, that's part of their MO, is rejecting authority. And look what's happening. In California, they expand the law against school suspension. It starts July 1st of this year, and this is what it is. Students can't be suspended for willful defiance or disruptiveness in the classroom. And the existing law applied to grades 1 through 3, but they just expanded it because it was such a great thing to begin with. They expanded it for grades 4 and 5. What a blessing, huh? You can do whatever you want. You can go up to your teacher, and you can squirt her in the face with an acid and a squirt gun. I mean, I'm being a little exaggerating here, but you can go up and you can call her names. You can be disruptive to class. They can't send you home. When I did that stuff when I was little, the principal spanked me with a paddle. Remember those days? And then my mother was called, and she had to be called home from work. Very inconvenient for a parent to come in the middle of the day when their employer's paying them, they got to pick up the child, I would get another spanking. My mother applied the Board of Education to the seat of learning, <laughs> and it was effective. It was effective, but not now. You can get away with anything. Don't spank your child. Now, there's a difference between beating and, and spanking. With my daughter, I'd always say, you're going to get three and I wouldn't do it when I was mad. I'd wait. If I was angry, I'd wait, send her up to her room, and then I would wait until I wasn't angry. Then I'd say, there's three spankings coming, and that way I could graduate how much I needed. But there was never left any marks on her for more than, you know, two weeks. <laughs> I'm only kidding. There was, <laughs> there was no marks on her. After 15, 20, 30 minutes, the redness goes away. She's learned a lesson. I haven't beat her. She learns a lesson. But not today. We know better. Psychologists say you ruin their self-esteem. And now we've got a whole bumper crop of kids growing up that reject authority because there is no authority. They've never learned authority. My mom is a retired police officer, and she told me, and my brother is a major actually on the sheriff's department down in Lee County, and he remember, they remember when they first started on the road many years ago, that there was a reverence, there was a respect for the police officer. It was fading, but there was a respect for authority. And when somebody would turn on the gumballs and, you know, the the lights in the car, and he'd pull somebody over, that person was like straight as an arrow, you know, and they were very uh, congenial, very forthright, whatever you need, very kind. um, You know, and there was a respect, right? But not anymore. Young juveniles can walk up to a police officer and spit on him. They can call him all kinds of names right to his face, and he can't do a thing about it. He can't, he can't even carry a gun. In some places, you can't even carry a gun. It's like, what, what are you going to do if it really comes down, you know? So what's my point? We're breeding a, a culture. A culture has already been bred actually, rejecting authority. And what do you think the end of that is? It's really, really, really ugly. And you're seeing it. And we're seeing it, aren't we? The only solution, and I'm going to stop here, the only solution for all of this nonsense is for people to wake up and get in their right mind. Nobody's thinking anymore. They're not even thinking biblically. They're not even thinking rightly. Our culture has to wake up. The administrators in the schools, they're too afraid to apply any kind of discipline at all. Like California. Kid can shoot spitballs at the teacher all day. And nothing happens. Because if you send Johnny down to the principal's office, the parent might sue the school. Are interrupting my work day? I think some of the parents, they need Jesus just like everyone else. Amen? It's not so much the kid's fault. It's many of the parents. But this is the kind of thing that is very applicable to us today. What I'm reading to you is very applicable. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, these things are happening. All kinds of strange things. But I want to encourage you, and then we'll end here, is don't get bogged down in all of this darkness. You know, this is a a difficult letter. We've been, you know, these last few letters, these short epistles have been very meaty. They've been very focused on heresy and false teachers and things of that nature. I'm looking forward to getting beyond it, honestly. But it needs to be said. It needs to be read. We need to be cognizant of it. And we need to take stock in our own relationship with the Lord and say, Lord, whatever I'm doing right now that is just against your will, if I'm playing games with you, Lord, I want to stop today. I want to reboot. I want to reboot today. Do you want God to just reboot you and start fresh again? Do you know that every time you confess your sin, it's a reboot? When you confess, what does the Bible say? He is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. As if you had never done it. The devil will say, did you see what he did? And the Lord, I don't know, what did, what did he do? I've already forgiven him for that. It's in the sea of forgetfulness. Somewhere back there, I have a perfect memory, and I can forget perfectly, too. It's under the blood of Christ. So what's the problem? Boy, that must frustrate the devil. But, beloved, you are loved by God. Do you know that? Do you know that all the things you're going through right now is not for naught? He's working out. He's he's changing. He's doing good things in you. Don't ever give up. Don't ever lose that awe and that reverence, that respect for his authority. That's what awe is. It's a respect. That's why we need more of that in, in everything of our life. I need to respect authority. It's good for me. And it ultimately is going to lead me into the throne room of God. And you too, because we submit to his authority. We submit to what he has done, what Jesus has done on the cross for us. If you haven't received Christ today, please receive him into your heart. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he will accept you. And be born again from above. Make this transition from this kingdom of darkness that we live in and be translated into the kingdom of light in his son, Jesus Christ, who paid the price for your sin and mine. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. Let's stand together. Sorry to keep you so long. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. And, Lord, we pray that you bless us this day. Lord, keep us safe, Lord, today, and keep us all healthy, Father. We pray for your blessing upon this entire fellowship, for every single one, every single child, every single family member, Lord, present or absent today, Lord, pour out your spirit upon this fellowship. Heal us, Father, spiritually, physically, emotionally, in every way. Lord, we love you and we thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. 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 God bless you.